You know, Mike, there are approximately 422,000 words in the English vocabulary. I don't believe any word is more important than the word choice. Wherever you are, good or bad, because the choices you make. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Mike Flynn. And if you're just joining us, the mission of my show is twofold, to guide you to an encounter with your own potential and greatness and to show you it is possible to leverage who you were made to be into a business or a platform that impacts the lives of others and helps you design the life that you want. My guests are entrepreneurs and leaders who have had what I refer to as an impact moment and are now using their platform to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. That all sounds great, right? But none of that is possible unless you take action. If you've listened to my show for any length of time, you know that each guest is part of a series such as leadership, mindset, courage, the comeback, and in this case, halftime. It's the middle of the year. You set out with some goals at the beginning of the year, and if you are on track with them, then congratulations, you're awesome. But if you're like me and most people, then you might have gotten off target or off your game plan over the course of the last six months. Now, however, is the perfect time to determine how the rest of the year will go for you and for me. What action will you take? When will you take it? And with whom will you take that action with? As I told somebody recently, it's time to grab the opportunity bull by the horns and ride it into submission. One of my personal anthems is the song Hall of Fame by the band The Script. The lyrics remind me of what you and I are capable of achieving. The lyrics like these, you can throw your hands up, you can beat the clock, you can move a mountain, you can break the rocks, you can be a master, don't wait for luck, dedicate yourself and you're gonna find yourself. If you and I do this day in and day out, even if we fail, but we get back up and we do it again, then we might stand a chance of standing in the Hall of Fame of our own life. My hope is that the guests you will hear from these next few weeks will stoke your thinking, inspire you to believe in yourself again, and take action, even if it means walking into the wrong room. That last bit will make more sense when you hear from Steve Sims. Now enough from me, it's time to hear from our incredible guests. We've all heard about the storied franchises in professional sports, teams like the Dallas Cowboys or the San Francisco 49ers. But there are a few storied franchises in the world of college football as well. I have been a fan of the University of Notre Dame fighting Irish for as long as I can remember. And no, it's not just because I'm Irish and Catholic, it's because of where it's located, the story of the school, the story of its players, the story of the community around the school and the adversity it's faced over its history, and the story of its renowned coaches. Several months ago, I asked Bernie Swain, the co-founder of the Washington Speakers Bureau and a previous guest on my show, if he would be kind enough to introduce me to Coach Lou Holtz. He said he would extend an invitation and get back to me. Three weeks later, I received what I had hoped for, a yes, a yes with instructions on how and when to set up the interview. This was a dream come true for me. Lou Holtz is the only coach in the history of college football to one, take six different teams to a bowl game, two, win five bowl games with different teams, three, to have four different college teams ranked in the final top 20 poll. And despite never inheriting a winning team, he compiled a 243, 127, and 7 career record that ranked him third in victories among active coaches and eighth in winning percentage. His 12 career postseason bowl victories ranked him fifth on the all-time list. Holtz was recently selected for the College Football Hall of Fame Class of 2008, which places him in an elite group of just over 800 individuals in the history of football who have earned this distinction. To put some more context around this, approximately one in 5,000 people who played in college football or coached in college football make it into the College Hall of Fame. Now, after his departure from Notre Dame following the 1996 season, 
He joined CBS Sports College Football Today for two seasons as a sports analyst and worked with the United States Filter, a global provider of water treatment, as a customer relations spokesman. From there, he went on to be a head coach at the University of South Carolina for six seasons from 99 to 2004, where he led the Gamecocks to -to back-to-back January 1 bowl games for the first time in the history of the school and defeated Ohio State in consecutive bowl appearances. For many years, Lou Holtz has been considered among the greatest speaking legends in America today. He speaks on overcoming seemingly impossible challenges by setting your own goals and working to achieve them. He has built a reputation as a motivator, a demanding disciplinarian, and someone who relishes challenges and hard work. Coach Holtz has authored three New York Times bestselling books, The Fighting Spirit that Chronicled Notre Dame's 1988 Championship Season, Winning Every Day, A Game Plan for Success, which he wrote in 1998, and which has been published in several languages, and his most recent book, which was released in August of 2006, is called Wins, Losses, and Lessons, an autobiography of his life and the lessons he has learned, and it's also a bestseller. Bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact with Coach Lou Holtz. Well, Coach Lou Holtz, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I am very honored uh, to have you here. It's my one-year anniversary of my show. And uh, I'm a longtime, huge Lou Holtz fan. You're one of the very first motivational books I've I ever read. Uh, and your story and uh, faith journey and the way you live your life is an example to, to everybody. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Mike. I flatter and humble by your comments. If you read one of my books, one thing's obvious. You didn't need a dictionary. There's no big words in there, but <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you so much. So I always kick things off with the same question, Coach, For regardless of who the guest is, which is if you could pick any skill that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Uh, you stumped me there. I'm sure other people have great answers, but I'm not a very talented individual. I was in the lower third of my high school class. I wasn't a particularly good athlete, uh, but I think the most important thing I've had this helped me along is common sense. I don't know why they call it common sense because it's so uncommon for people to use it. But I try to simplify everything that happens in my life. I try to observe. I try to analyze why. And then if I can simplify things, I can possibly solve them. I think we complicate life uh, far too often. Uh, there's only seven colors of the rainbow, but look what Michelangelo did with them. I mean, Keep life as simple. And to me, I, I think that's the only skill and talent that I have, and it's something that can be acquired and something that can be developed. I love that, Coach. You know, we do, uh, I think it was Leonardo da Vinci who said, um, simplicity is the ultimate form of sophistication. And, uh, and I love that. So, what, what do you, how do you, going back throughout your whole entire life to today, how, how do you go about developing that skill and awareness of keeping things simple? Well, I just look at, uh, I've always had a sense of humor. Maybe that's because I was a little bit smaller, went to school earlier than most people. I was a little bit mature for my class, et cetera. So I developed a, a sense of humor. And I look at things a little bit different than many people do. You go to a doctor or I'm going to Afghanistan, they give you a questionnaire to you know, who should they contact in case of an emergency? I look at it and say, well, obviously a doctor. You know, don't call my wife. She can't do it. They call a doctor if it's an emergency. <laughs> it's just the way I look at things. I love it. I love it, Coach. You know, you are one of the, the most famous coaches in the world. And and I know I know you say you're not a very, uh, you're a very humble person, Coach, but you are definitely one of the most famous coaches in the world. And and you've coached individuals directly, but you've also coached people indirectly from afar, such as myself. And and what an awesome responsibility that must be and, and feel. Can you tell us about maybe some of the coaches or mentors that you have had in your life that have helped shape your outlook and influenced how you live? Well, I think everybody I've ever coached or played with or worked for uh, influences your life a lot of different ways. I've learned so many things. I, I've had some 
uh, great coaches for me. I mean, you talk about uh, Urban Meyer, Charlie Strong. You talk about my son Skip, Barry Alvarez, who was in Wisconsin, uh, Monty Kiffin, Pete Carroll. I mean, I've been blessed in so many respects. I've learned so much from all of them. I've learned from great athletic directors like uh, Gene Corrigan, uh, Dick Rosenthal, uh, and Willis Casey at NC State. You, you learn by observing. I, for example, I go to NC State and won three games for three years. My first year, we end up going to a bowl game, beat Bobby Bowden, West Virginia, 47-13 in the Peach Bowl at uh, my guess when there were only six or seven bowls. So going to bowl there was a big thing. We filled the stadium. Everybody's excited. Donations rolling. I go in to see the athletic director. And I, I said, Willis, you haven't said anything about a bowl bonus. He, he said, what? I said, well, when you win and you go to a bowl, you usually give the coaching staff a month's salary. He looked at me. He said, Coach, I want to tell you something. I hired you to do that. I fired the last guy because he didn't do it. I'll fire you if you don't continue to do it. <laughs> but, okay, now my, my job is to win, not, not to be rewarded for what I was hired to do. So don't ask for it. So I've learned from so many different people in so many different ways. And athletes, uh, there was a young man when I first went to Notre Dame, was a walk-on named Mike Brennan. He was out of... Uh, Baltimore, Maryland, they, the players called him Turtle. He was so slow. And I, I didn't like it. I thought that was very disparaging to the Turtle. Uh, but there was no way he was ever going to play for us. He came to me and he said, Coach, he said, I, I, I want to be able to play lacrosse this spring. He said, I, I will only attend the games. I won't miss practice. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, I can play lacrosse and I can earn a letter. I'm not sure I can in football, but I love the sport. Well, when we beat Miami in a classic game in the history of Notre Dame, according to the various polls they've had, Mike Brennan started an offensive guard for us in that game. You learn that if you're willing to persevere and accept your role and continue. Uh, we, we had so many people. Reggie Ho, a little walk-on kicker that kicked five field goals against Michigan, enabled us to win it in the national championship game. Is now a doctor at John Hopkins. I mean, I've had so many walk-ons that have gone on to be successful. The main thing I see with people is you can succeed when no one believes in you. You have no chance to succeed if you do not believe in yourself. And there was a young man named Pat Eilers. I, I'm at Notre Dame, and he stops in my office, and he's on his way back from Yale. He's a freshman football player at Yale. And he comes in and says, I want to transfer to Notre Dame. I want to play here. He was from Minnesota, and I said, well, we don't take transfers. We don't give scholarships. If you can get in and want to walk on, fine, but I discourage you from doing so. Next thing I know, he transfers, he walks on, he earns a scholarship, he starts on our national championship team, played seven years in the NFL, ultra-successful husband, father, and a very, very successful businessman. Because here's an individual, I didn't believe he could play, nobody else played, but he believed he could play. So you learn from every player. I could go on and on, we could run 10 of your programs just talking about <laughs> athletes that have influenced me. You know, there's there's two things that I've just taken away from that those stories that you just shared is number one is something you said, which is learn by observing, which is so powerful, such a powerful concept. And and the other thing is the the power of belief, you know, the power of believing in yourself and and understanding that there's only two things that a coach or any leader can fix for you or help you with. And those are number one, your belief in yourself and number two, your skill set. But if you're not motivated, no one can help you with those first two things. Oh, I agree with you. Well, first of all, if somebody's on drugs, you aren't going to be able to help them until he makes that decision. You know, Mike, there are approximately 422,000 words in the English vocabulary. I don't believe any word's more important than the word choice. Wherever you are, good or bad, because of choices you make. You choose to do drugs, drop out of school, join a gang, get tattoos from head to bottom. You're probably choosing to have some difficulty in life. And please stop blaming me for the problems because you happen to make good, bad choices. 
as I was taught by my parents, and I was born during the Depression in a very poor home. My dad had gone to third grade. And life's a matter of choices. And choices have ramifications, and you need to accept that fact. Now, if you're going to make good choices, but everything starts with a dream. You can't do anything with an individual. They talk about motivation. Motivation is getting people to have a desire and want to achieve something and then show them how they could possibly do it. I would have the athletes sit down and say, okay, where do you want to be a year from now? Where, where do you want to be professionally? Where do you want to be socially? Where do you want to be financially? Where do you want to be a year from now, religiously, or anything else that you may possibly put down? Now, once you write that down, and answer these questions honestly. What financial price are you willing to pay in order to achieve that? What sacrifice are you willing to make personally in order to achieve that? What skills and talents do you have to acquire in order to achieve that? Who do you have to work with in order to get that done? What problems are you going to have to overcome in order to get that done? And what's your plan to get it done? See, it's not just a wish list. It's looking at things analytically and saying, this is what I want to do, and here are some questions I've got to answer honestly. And the problem is too many of us aren't honest. You know, I may want to be a scratch golfer. What what price am I willing to pay for lessons, et cetera? Uh, How hard am I willing to go out and practice? What skills do I have to learn to drive a better chip? It's not complicated. It's simple. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, you mentioned your parents, and I know that they were a, a big influence, as everyone's parents are in their life. And and I know that how you were raised ultimately contributed to your desire to coach. So maybe you could share a story about why you decided to pursue coaching as a career path and now speaking and even consulting, and maybe what the impact moment was where you decided to step onto this path. Well, if you want to make God laugh, you tell them what your plans are. I never had any goals or dreams growing up. I, it just wasn't part of my life. And nobody in our family had ever gone to college, let alone graduate from college. And I played athletics, but I also worked and saved my money because I wanted to buy a 1949 Chevrolet. At the end of my junior year, the high school coach made a visit with my parents and said, I think Lou ought to go to college and be a coach. I had no desire to go to college. I wasn't a very good student. My parents decided I should use the money I saved to go to college. I said no. They said yes. I said no. So we compromised, and I went. That was a typical compromise with my parents. But I made a vow at that time. Someday I would own a 1949 Chevrolet. When I was in Notre Dame, I finally bought one and had it done like it was brand new. But the point is, I had to go to a state school because I couldn't get into any other school. There was a time where if your parents paid taxes in the state, they had to give you one semester of school to prove yes or no whether you could do the work academically. As I said, I wasn't a very good student coming out of high school, but I did have an English teacher named Glenda Dunlop who insisted that I learn the proper use of language and how to write and things like that. So I I went to college. I'm only going to be there one month. I I go there one month and uh, I mean one semester and I came home and I'm going to work in a steel mill. And after a week, I didn't want to work in a steel mill. So that's how I ended up in coaching now. A very interesting thing, uh, when I got out of the service after college as an officer in the Army, I was going to go to Conneaut High School and teach history and be an assistant coach. But my college coach, because I had an operation my senior year, could not play. They had me coach the freshman. He called Forsevashevsky at Iowa, who he was in the Navy with in World War II, and said, I think Lou would be an excellent coach. Would you give him a graduate assistant? So I can go to Conneaut and get money, or I go to Iowa and be a graduate assistant. I went to Iowa as a graduate assistant. We finished second in the country. I end up with William Mary at age 24 as an assistant coach. That is how I end up in coaching, and I had no desire. Now, he later told my wife when I said coaching, I meant high school. He said, I didn't mean Notre Dame. I didn't think that would ever happen. But as far as speaking is concerned, I had one speech class my entire life. 
It was speech 101 at Kent State, and I got a C in that. I'm not, I'm not a speaker. I got a lisp. I slurred the S's, all these things. So I'm at the University of Arkansas my first year, and we're going to go to the Orange Bowl and play Oklahoma, which is number one in the country. And I had to suspend three athletes, scored 78% of our touchdown. Now, Mike, that was not my decision for them not to play. That was their choice. You choose to violate the do-right rule, you're choosing not to play. Well, they violated the do-right rule. We said, you're going to play. They take the court to get an injunction against me. Bill Clinton, the attorney general, represented me. We won the case. They would not be allowed to play. And we became the largest underdog there's ever been. We ended up beating them 31-6 to when they're number one in the country. So now we come back home. I'm asked to be on the Johnny Carson show. Next thing I know, IBM and General Motors calls me and said, will you come talk to our people? About what? Uh, about what you did in preparing your team for the Orange Bowl, how you overcame all the odds. So I just went there and I started talking about what I did and not thinking twice about it. Well, IBM, now this is in the late 70s, explodes. The people were in the audience, all of a sudden they're running Kroger's or running something, and they're calling me. Would you? That is how the speaking started. It wasn't because I said, oh. And so I started getting all these requests. So I said to my secretary, I, I, I don't want to handle this anymore. I want to win championships. I don't want to make speeches. So I went with a speaker's bureau, a very small one at that time, to get it out of my office. I don't want to deal with this. I want to deal with recruiting and coaching. And that, that's how the speaking exploded. Not because I thought, oh, I want to be a speaker. No, it's just a matter of thing. You go do everything the best of your ability and it works out. You know, and a big thank you to Bernie Swain, who connected us also. He's a, he's a gem of a guy. Uh, and so I, I know you guys are close friends. and. And uh, I, I just want to give Bernie a shout out on the show. And Harry and Bernie Rhodes, been with them 30 some years. We did it on a handshake. We've never had a contract, never had a disagreement in 35, 37 years. I trust him with my life. Both of them are incredible people. You know, I'd, l- I'd like to dive in. This is a good segue, the concept of a handshake, because there seems to be a breakdown in trust and empathy and excellence inside the business world, political world, and even sports franchises. So what's, what path or steps can entrepreneurs and leaders take to get back into a, a situation where uh, there's a, a, a consistent and pure exchange of trust? I just think you need one simple rule for your organization. One of the rules I had with our team and raising my children, my greatest accomplishment by far. It's not coach, it's not TV, not speaking. It's my family. And I think there's one rule. Do what's right. Uh, there's never a right time to do the wrong thing. There's never a wrong time to do the right thing. And we, you know, I'm a very religious person. I, I don't preach it. I don't lecture it. But I hope the way I live my life reflects the faith I have in God. But uh, there are too many people that say, well, there is no right, there is no wrong. It's whatever you want. The ends justify the means. It doesn't mean if you lie, you say, I, I lied to you for your best interest, but now you've got to trust me when I tell you something. Everything <laughs> is based on trust. I, I, you cannot have a marriage. You can't have a relationship. Uh, I could not have a relationship with our players or coaches if it wasn't based on trust. And the players got to be able to trust one another. All relationship is based on trust. Your, your viewers have to be able to trust that you've done the preparation and you're going to do what's in the right thing and all the time. Now, how do I make sure that people can always trust me? I, I've asked that question. Well, give them, how can I make sure you're going to trust me? There's only one way. Do what's right. That's why the rule do what's right is important because if you do what's right, you're going to have a relationship with people. The customers have to be able to trust the company. The company's got to be able to trust its employees and vice versa. And I've been married because I trust my wife. She's got to be able to trust me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's so true. And I love that what you said a moment ago, which is there's there's no right time to do the wrong thing and there's no wrong time to do the right thing. Such a powerful concept. Why do you think it's it's hard for people today? Why do you think that 
the, the world is challenged by the concept of doing the right thing and and we're constantly wronging other people. Well, I, I think it, it goes back. Uh, everybody feels the ends justify the means, and sometimes they'll try to solve a very small problem, and they compound the issue by lying or deceiving and, and things along that line. I, I think it, uh, if you're honest with people and above board, I think you have to be able to look in the mirror. You have to, and what holds a country together? What holds a team together, Mike? What, what, what holds a business together or core values? See, on a team or in a business, you don't have to like one another. You don't have to like the same music or the same food. You have to make sure you understand what your whole core values were. And that's where I get confused a little bit. I, I grew up uh, in the Depression, and I remember World War II, and all my uncles and fathers being in the service and coming back and the sacrifice they made. The values then was, boy, I'll tell you what, you want to be embarrassed, you be known as a liar, somebody that doesn't do the truth, or, or you be a slacker and you cut corners and you don't work hard and you try to take from other people. Those were the values of this country at, at that time. I don't know necessarily what they are now because this used to be a very religious country. Now it's more secular. Uh, well, let's just do what feels good. It's always somebody else's fault. Nobody's held accountable for the choices they make. Uh, and everybody's a victim. And that's the thing that I really, I, I think we do such a disservice to people when we create a victim's attitude there. You know, we all have a reason to be better. You included, me included, in society. In a spouse, in an organization, is that we we've all had injustices done, but you can't go through life being bitter and live your life so that when you hire, when you pass away, your spouse has to hire Paul Barish because you don't have six friends. I, I think that uh, what's important is what you really believe, and when you look in the mirror, feel comfortable with where you are. I love that. You know, what you just said also reminds me of. A, a saying uh, that you made famous, which is the what's important now concept. And I used to wear, I have a different band on right now, but I used to wear a, ba a brand on my wrist that had those, uh, those initials, W-I-N, what's important now. And it was, it was a concept and is a concept I constantly refer back to, to keep me focused on doing the right thing, making the right choice. And ultimately, going back to what you said at the very beginning of our conversation, that is the simplest solution, is just to do the right thing. As soon as you do the wrong thing, you've just made everything way more complicated than it needs to be. Well, there, there's no doubt about it. See, you don't have to be real smart. You don't have to have a good memory if you do the right thing. Because you, you don't have to remember what line I told them before. i got to make sure I tell them the, the same line again. I, I, I think that this concept that there's always got to be an enemy. And you go back, if you read Saul Alinsky, his theory, you always have to have an enemy. Because if you always have an enemy, then you're going to get people that don't like that. It's going to come to your side. And consequently, we have too many people that pull against one another. Uh, I used to have a tug of war for our team when I take over losing team. Offense versus defense, and then struggle, and somebody win. Yeah, yeah, we won, and say we can't win when we pull against each other. The only chance we have is if we help one another, work together, and I think that the same thing with this country. I think we have an obligation to help other people. I think we have an obligation to reach out and help people. And I think you really help people by teaching them how to help themselves. So many people in this world, Mike, don't realize the talent and the ability they have. There are too many people in this world that want to make you feel like you're a victim and you can't help yourself and it's not your fault. Here's the problem with that that I find. And once again, I, I, I'm not speaking for anybody else. I'm just using to me common sense. If you feel you are really down in the street, because if somebody else puts you there, then only they can lift you out. 
However, if you realize you are where you are because of choices you make, and you are there because what you did, you will help yourself to solve it and to change things. And, you know, I, I counsel a lot of different people will write me about this and that, and I just say, examine the choices you make and what, what changes do you have to make and the choices you make. Because life is a trade-off. There, there isn't anything in this world that's going to come easy. You, I know you've had so many successful people on your program, and I guarantee you, Michael Flynn, every one of them could get up and talk about the sacrifices they and their family have to make. And when I see somebody very successful, I don't say, gee, he must have got it dishonestly. You know what I think? How many ball games he missed and his son was playing? How many times he wasn't home when his daughter was going to the formal? Or, or they couldn't join the bowling group, or they couldn't join the bridge club at met every Wednesday at 7 o'clock. There's a sacrifice, and you show me anybody, an athlete, a business person, a TV personality, or such as yourself. I know the sacrifices you, your wife, and your four children have had to make for you to enjoy success. Thank you, Coach. I, I appreciate that. You know, and and it's such a powerful concept, and, and it's truth, because when, when somebody is, the word passion uh, is overused and misused in in uh, the entrepreneurial world because they don't understand the meaning. The meaning, and, and I'm a religious uh, man myself also, and and the meaning of the word passion literally is the willingness to suffer. It comes from the passion of Christ. And and so I am passionate about what I'm doing and the, the fact that I believe that I'm called to greatness, that you, Coach Lou Holtz, are called to greatness, and that everybody listening and that we interact with is called to greatness, and and it's my mission to draw that out of people, because I believe that we're all created for that unique purpose. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. But what people don't always understand is our talents lie in different areas. What we have to find out is where our talents are. And whatever you're going to do, do it to the very best of your ability. I don't care whether you're a mailman or whether you're a carpenter or electrician. That's irrelevant. But it's just understanding where your talents are. Not everybody can be all-American. Not everybody can be all-conference. Not everybody can be first-team. But everybody can be the very best that they're capable of being. And I used to tell my children when I said, well, what are you going to be when you grow up? Oh, I don't know. I, I want you to do that. Find something you like to do. Find something that you do pretty well. And find somebody to pay you to do it. Now, if you find somebody to pay you to do it, you've got a career. If you can't find somebody to pay you to do it, you've got a hobby. And you have to understand the difference between a career and a hobby. One of the things that our family did many years ago with the proceeds from the books we've written, we've written three New York Times bestselling books, written more books than I've read, obviously, but (laughs) we, we took that money and we started the foundation. And one of the things we do with the foundation is we're raised in East Liverpool, Ohio. I was born in Fallsby, West Virginia. Uh, those are my two hometowns. And my wife's from that area. But the steel mills are down, the potteries are down, et cetera. So we provide scholarships. We've done this for, I don't know, 18 years now to trade schools. I mean, I have 27 graduates of automotive school working for Hill Trucking. I have... Uh, people that uh, are chefs, you know, went to culinary school, et cetera. And that's all. Not everybody has to go to college. Not everybody has to be in the limelight. Everybody, pick out your niche of what you can do and let's do it well. 
I totally agree with that. Do you know, uh, have you ever had the chance to meet Jean-Paul DeJoria? That name rings a bell, but I, I got to tell you, Mike, I'm an old man. And <laughs> God, did, God did you all timer, so you can't remember how far you used to hit the golf ball. But, uh, <laughs> uh, refresh me about Paul. He is a, uh, he's a billionaire, uh, but he was homeless. Uh, and he made choices while he was homeless that enabled him to build a business where he is now a billionaire and having the impact that he's able to have in the world and give back in the way that he is now. He could have, he could still be homeless and on the street, but instead, because of the choices he made, the sacrifices he made, his willingness to go out there and take risks, uh, he now is a billionaire and owns John Paul Mitchell Systems and and uh, Patron Tequila, and uh, he's a, he's a fantastic guy. And sometime. Someday you guys should hopefully have the opportunity to. That, that, what, a, what a great story! I, I I I hope I get a chance to meet him someday. I would learn a great deal from him. You have this great quote that says, "If you're bored with life, if you don't get up every morning with a burning desire to do things, you don't have enough goals." And now there are a lot of people struggling with setting goals. They don't know how to approach it. How would you advise and coach someone to approach setting and filtering through our goals and the opportunities that present themselves? Well, I think that that is absolutely critical. Here's a question I would ask those people. The first thing I'd ask them, are you growing or are you dying? The tree's either growing or it's dying, and so is grass, so is a marriage, so is a business, so is a person. Doesn't have a thing to do with age. Has everything to do with one thing determines whether you're growing or you die. Are you trying to accomplish something? If you're trying to accomplish something, you're going to have an enthusiasm, excitement. You're going to get up every day because you want to accomplish it. And the problem with being retired, and I'm not retired, but my wife is, and I, I said to her, you never get a day off. <laughs> I mean, when you're retired, every day is exactly the same. But I, I think it's critical to have things that, that that's what motivates you. That's what inspires people. And that's why even though I, I'm an old man right now, that I don't want to stop. I, I don't want to stop because once you stop, what gets you up in the morning? What's going to cause you to go do things? I get up every day and I've got a schedule of things that I want to accomplish and things I want to get done. When I, and I learned that lesson when I left Notre Dame, I never thought I'd coach again. We, where to go from Notre Dame, according to my mother, go directly to heaven and sit by the Pope. And we, we took Notre Dame and we're on top and we've kept it there. And you get to the point where you say, this is pretty good. Let's not risk anything. Let's not change anything. Let's maintain. And whenever you maintain, you're dying. And so when people don't have goals, I say, well, then, then you're dying. And if you aren't trying to figure out how to improve your marriage, the marriage is dying. Uh, I tell my wife every day, uh, I love you and you can't do a doggone thing about her. I, I want her to know that. How can I make it better? How can I make her feel better? How can I make her happy that she married me 56 years ago and still with me to this day? I, it, it's that simple. So when you, when I, that quote, and I did make that quote, and I mean it to the bottom of my heart, mean it even more so today. That it's not, do you want to, are you growing or are you dying? Mm-hmm. Case rest. I, I love that, coach. And, and you know, you mentioned leaving Notre Dame, and, and I know how much you love Notre Dame then and now. And you've had to make some tough decisions in life and let go of a lot of things that you love and are passionate about, and maybe even provided you with a sense of security. So what process have you followed to help guide you through making some of these tough calls? Well, I think like anything else, you have to understand, once let's go back to the when I was coaching, I had two mandates, graduate and win. Not put them in the pros, not get to know alumni, not to lower my golf handicap, not to go to cocktail parties, not to do interviews, graduate and win. If you run a business, you have two mandates. Satisfy the customer and make a profit. Not five, not ten. How do I satisfy the customer? How do I make a profit? 
Now, when you understand what your mandate is and what you're trying to accomplish, then you're going to start asking, what changes do I have to make in order to do those two things? For example, I think I'm the only coach to win the national championship and the award for graduating 100% of his football team the same year. And one of the things we did was we moved our study hall from a classroom where you feel like you're in jail. Somebody drops a pencil and disrupts everybody in the class. We moved our study hall to the library. Well, why did we do that? There was one way in the library and one way out. We checked them in. Nobody left till the time was up. Where do the girls go? They go to the library. <laughs> where do the good students go? They go to the library. Where are the computers? They're in the library. Why did we make that change? So that we could graduate our athletes. There were times where we'd have to sit down and say, we've got to change what we're doing offensively. Why? Not just, well, let's try this. No, because for us to win, we've got to make these changes. And people are afraid to change. Embrace change. But always ask yourself, this change I'm making, is it going to help me win? Or is it going to help me graduate? If the answer is yes, then doggone it, we're going to do it. If the answer is no, then don't do it. If, once again, so I look at what am I trying to accomplish? If it's speaking, I want to know about the audience, what's the problems, what are the difficulties, what's their mental attitude, what, because I can't, if I go speak, number one, I want to entertain the audience. I also want them to think, to say, look at it and say yes or no. I don't want them to sit there and say, okay, I'm going to believe it. No, I feel very comfortable if you analyze what I say and put it in practical. And if it doesn't work, you come back to me. I've never had anybody come back. So I don't preach. I don't like, I just try to communicate. I don't stand behind a podium. I don't read notes. I just want to talk. I want to share my thoughts. I don't talk about something I read about or heard about, just things I believe. Such powerful advice, coach. And, you know, you've, you've coached a lot of great athletes who have turned into to great men and leaders uh, in business and outside of business. What are some common characteristics that have helped these men become great leaders on the field as well as off the field? Well, first of all, let's talk about leadership. His father, Hesburgh, said, I'm going to announce to the world you're the head football coach of Notre Dame. I'm going to give you that title. I can't name you the leader of the Notre Dame football team. He said, titles come from above. The players will determine if you're a leader. If you're a leader, you have a vision where you want to go, plan, you lead by example, you hold people accountable. But I had some great things happen two years ago. Two years ago, I had two players that played for me at Notre Dame put into the Hall of Football Hall of Fame, the National Football, Jerome Bettis and Tim Brown the same year. The same year, I had three former players added to the Notre Dame football staff. Autry Denson of running back, Todd Light as defensive back, and Jeff Burris. All three of them played for me. And that same year, I had two players that played for me added to the board of trustees of the University of Notre Dame, no small fee. Brian Spruwell, who's now president of the NBA, and a guy named Rod West, vice president of Arkansas, Louisiana, Power Gas. Those seven athletes, Mike, are all Afro-Americans. Now, I can't take credit for it. Their families have to take credit for it. But I would like to believe that we contributed their success by teaching them to make good choices, to believe in themselves, to be goal-oriented, etc. So when you go look at all those seven athletes, we could talk about each one individually. Tim Brown was a case where he didn't have enough confidence. He talked about this after one practice, first spring practice. I walked off the field, the media said, what would you think? I wasn't ready there. I said, that Tim Brown is really special. He was 13. And he came in the next day. He said, do you say it? I said, yeah. I said, Tim, do you have a drug problem? Uh, do you lie? You cheat? What, what? I, I said, because it's not talent that's keeping you from being great. I believed in him. He went on to become a Heisman Award winner. 
You can go Jerome Bennett. You can go uh, Rod West. Here's an individual that came out of New Orleans, uh, was a good football player, wasn't a great player, uh, played both offense and defense, what is it, Notre Dame, contributed greatly. But he was so unselfish. Everything was team-oriented. It was helping other people. What do I need? See, we have a goal. Our goal was to win, and everybody has a role. Maybe your role is to cover kickoffs. I don't want to cover it. I want to, that's, that's not important. You've got to do your role to the very best of your ability. At one time, I think I had 57 players in the NFL at the same time. Not because they were all, all American. But because they were great in the locker room, they were positive teammates, they stayed healthy, they were practiced on the field, they're great on special teams. And when it came down, do I keep him or do I keep it? They're going to take that person who's reliable and trustworthy and committed and cares about his teammates. Powerful, you know, and, and they're willing to face adversity and put in the work to overcome it on a regular basis, which, you know, which leads me to. The fact that in 2015, your house burned down and you lost a lot of precious memorabilia, but your attitude and how you responded to it, all of this adversity, this, you know, this devastation was remarkable. And, and one of the things you said is that in athletics, you are going to have ups and downs. And whenever we had it down, we did two things. We gave ourselves X amount of time to feel bad, and then we moved forward. It may seem like a silly question to you, Coach, but how, how do you set what X time frame is, especially when you have your home, which is your 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 place of security? You've got all of this this stuff, this memorabilia that's important to you. How do you set what X time frame is for something like that? Well, first of all, my belief is if you replace something, it's not a loss. Now I can replace a house. And I often think about how lucky we are to have the friends and the resources we can replace. How about the poor people that homes are burning, forest fires or floods, and they don't have the friends and the resources. Now, if you lose a child, that can't be replaced. That's a tremendous loss. But I was wakened at 2.30 in the morning by the smoke alarm. I wakened my wife. I tried to get upstairs with a lot of the valuable things I had. And the smoke was too intense. We couldn't get up there. We, we get out of the house. And the house burned to the ground. About 7 o'clock in the morning, I mean, there's nothing but smoldering ashes. Everything you have is gone. My wife's crying. She's 78 years of age at that time. I was 79. And she's crying. And, you know, I felt depressed. And I said to her, I said, honey, you have to wait o'clock Monday morning, that's 25 hours, to cry, to feel sorry for yourself, and think about what we lost. But 8 o'clock Monday morning, we're never going to talk about this again. We're never going to look back. That happened. That's part of it. But we're going to build it bigger and better than what we lost. And within a month, we will be in that home, and I promise you. It's better than what we lost. And uh, every I've never had anything happen in my life. It didn't turn out to be a plus if you react positively to it. It will learn your benefit and will make you better in the long run. Yeah. Have you ever read uh, the, the book, The Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? Yes, I have. And, and he talks specifically about that, the, the power of how we respond to things and that that is completely within our our control so uh, has that something is that something you learned that that ability to choose that response or is that something that you've kind of innately possessed i, I just think it's common sense the house burned down i can't do anything about it now i mean <laughs> it's not like go by and change it. it it happened where do we go from now, what's important and now? Incidentally, I said Notre Dame, a guy named Bart Timms was a, uh, a teacher at Notre Dame, and he talked to our team and he mentioned the word win. And that's where we came up with that. And what's important now? And if you ask yourself 25 times a day, this is what I want to do, what's important now? And evaluate the past, focus on the future, but tell you what you have to do in the present to accomplish it. Coach, I want to thank you for your time today, and and uh, it's been a real honor and a privilege to have you on the show. And and there's so many nuggets of wisdom 
that people can can use to build a rock solid house that you've shared with us today. If there's one thing that you would want people to remember from our conversation today, what might it be? I think it'd be the importance of doing what's right, doing everything the very best of your ability and reaching out and caring about people. And let me tell you why I think that's important. Because if you follow those three rules, your self-image, your self-confidence grows. We have two types of people, those that lift people up and those that pull people down. And the only people that lift other people up are those that are confident in themselves, that believe in themselves and like themselves. And if you lie, you cheat, you steal, and you deceive, you can't be pleased with yourself. Consequently, your self-image is going to be down. You're going to pull other people down. So that's why I just believe that self-image, self-confidence, it's so important because that's going to show how you react to other people. And there, there are too many people that criticize their children unfairly. I mean, never criticize the performer, but criticize the performance. And there's a big difference. The self-image people will criticize the performer rather than the performance. And that's, the, that's going to determine whether you be successful, whether you're failing. So I just say, hey, do what's right so that your self-image goes up. Is there is there a, a short example that you can share, like from your coaching days where you criticized the performance but not the performer? Oh, yeah, I did that all the time. And if I went back into coaching, Mike, which I won't, I'd be a far better coach than I've ever been before because I understand certain things now. What you say to an individual is very important. But what you say is not near as important as your tone of voice. And your tone of voice is not near as important as your facial expression. So I would be more demanding. I'd have higher standards. But I would say, son, that was a dumb thing to do. And I'll tell you what, come <laughs> Monday, you're going to regret that thing. When I get you on the practice field, I can hardly wait to run you up and down. <laughs> and, and, and they will not resent it. They'll appreciate it because you didn't attack them personally but you do attack the performance. And I could go over and over, but we live and learn. And, and we, you know, nobody has a perfect life, and I'm certainly an, an example. I mean, we all have problems and difficulties. That's the one thing we're always going to have. But I, I just think it's how you deal with people. When you do something wrong, you try to correct it, and you try to move on. Coach, I want to affirm you and appreciate you for your generosity and your your sharing your wisdom and your talents with us today on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And you can thank Harry and Bernie for my being here. Absolutely, I will. Do not forget about the awesome gifts I have for you, the Clarity of Purpose Scorecard and the Six Bridges to Personal Growth and Well-Being. Head over to the impactentrepreneur.net forward slash scorecard, enter your info and download it today. Now, coach, thank you for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show today. Thank you for sharing your passion with us, ideas on how we can set goals, face adversity, and make difficult decisions that empower us to lead into our future. Truly an unforgettable conversation, and I am incredibly grateful. Now, fans, if you've missed any of the key points, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 64 for all the key points and highlights of my conversation with the one and only coach Lou Holtz. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Lawton Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them. Now, until next time, you know what to do. Go make an impact. Impact.